0: We're going to plunge into the book of Revelation immediately. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 4 to the end of the chapter. Revelation 1, verses 4 to 20. This is what Holy Scripture says. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands, is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. These spectacular verses spill over with the richest allusions to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation rarely quotes the Old Testament in a large chunk, a handful of times, but... Scores and scores and scores of times, just about every verse, it makes allusion to one passage or another of the Old Testament. So, the more you know your Old Testament, the more you understand the book of John, or the book of Revelation. And in all of these allusions, there is a description of God, especially focused on the breathtaking authority and blinding glory of the Lord Jesus. Here we find God in verse 8 speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And then a few verses on, verse 17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. I think it'll be helpful to focus on those two verses, by first running through the whole section so that we see how the argument flows. And for that purpose, it's useful to divide it into two parts. The first part is verses 4 to 8. Grace and peace to you, the seven churches, from the triune God. Grace and peace to you, the seven churches from the triune God. Verse 4, grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That is, from God Himself, the eternal God. He is, He was, He is to come. He's eternal. So grace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from the seven spirits before His throne. That's a way of referring to the Holy Spirit. It sounds a bit strange to speak of seven spirits, but that's actually drawn from an Old Testament prophecy that all first century Christians were familiar with. It's found in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of those chapters that depicts what will ultimately take place at the end of the age. Spectacular transformation under great David's greater son, under King Jesus from David's line. There we read, for example, in these last days, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of this in Isaiah 11. And at the beginning of that chapter, we're introduced to this Davidic king we know as the Lord Jesus, the one who came from David's line. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That is, it's as if the the entire line of Jesse, the Davidic line, the line that takes us to King Jesus, is, is cut off, but a branch still shoots out of it. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then we're told these words, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, the sevenfold characteristics of the spirit, did you see me counting them off, that fall upon the Lord Jesus? That's a way of then referring in the New Testament to the seven spirits before the throne. That is the Holy Spirit himself. So, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, who is to come, from God the Father, from the seven spirits before His throne, from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. So there you have the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Do you see? Grace and peace to you from the triune God. There are many, many of these triple allusions to the triune God in the book of Revelation. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the rulers of the kings of the earth. So He's the faithful witness. What does that mean? The word behind our English word witness is martus, from which we get the word martyr. Initially, martus simply meant witness. But by the end of the first century and into the second, there were so many Christians who gave their ultimate witness to the gospel by becoming martyrs that the word martus came to mean martyr. That is, somebody who gives His witness, her witness, all the way to the point of death, but there is a sense in which Jesus Himself gives His witness to the point of death. He witnesses to the plan of God, the mission of God, the gospel of God, by Himself obeying His Father's command to go to the cross. He thus bears witness to the truth by dying. He is the ultimate. Witness, martyr. So that it is in the book of Revelation that you begin to see this transfer of meaning from witness to martyr. So he's the first faithful witness, as it were. Then he's the firstborn from the dead, we're told. That doesn't mean the first one to came back to come back from the dead. After all, Lazarus beat him to it. Since Jesus himself raised Lazarus from the dead before Jesus himself died. And then there's the son of the widow of Nain, there are a couple in the Old Testament and so forth. But Jesus is the first to come back from the dead with what Paul calls a resurrection body, that is, a transformed existence. And He's only the firstborn because all of His own people are coming along behind Him at the end of the age. Do you see? He's the firstborn with resurrection existence from the dead. And He's the ruler, we're told, of the kings of the earth. Of course, there is a sense in which Jesus reigns already. Don't we read at the end of Matthew's Gospel after Jesus has died and risen from the dead and is about to ascend? He says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus reigns already. But although he reigns already, his reign is contested. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. That is, until he's finally completely won. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But one day the reign will no longer be contested. That is described later on in in the book of Revelation when we we read the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ and He shall reign forever. He's the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you see? Every knee shall bow either willingly in adoration and gratitude and faith or in absolute terror because in the end, God wins. So the initial doxology... Grace and peace to you from Him who is, who was, who is to come, from the seven spirits before His throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness. So, grace and peace to you, the seven churches, from the triune God. Second, from the triune God with an emphasis on Jesus, verses 5b to 7. We continue with this focus on Jesus. Look at the way the doxology begins halfway through verse 5. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. If this were simply to Him who loves us and that's all, it could be referring to God the Father. It could be referring to the whole triune God. But the text says, to Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood. That can't be said of the Father. Can't be said of the Holy Spirit. It is said of Jesus. Jesus became a human being and shed His blood. He freed us from our sins by His blood. You and I, when we think of the blood of Christ, we sometimes use, use, sometimes use the metaphor of being washed in the blood, cleaned by the blood. That's not the metaphor being used here. He's freed us from his blood by his blood. That is, he has set us free by his death. His blood refers to his substitutionary death. He freed us from the guilt of sin, he freed us from the corruption of sin, he freed us from the enslavement of sin by his death, by the shedding of his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests, God's own domain for His saving rule. And intermediaries, all of us priests between God and this broken, damned, sinful world. Priests before this living God. A category used of Israel in the Old Testament and now applied to Christians. All in order to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. All the focus on Jesus, on Jesus, on Jesus, on Jesus. And then the next verse, likewise, is still on Jesus, but it's made up of quotations from the Old Testament, or strong allusions. Look, He is coming with the clouds. That's from Daniel 7. We'll look at that one in a few moments. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of Him. That comes from Zechariah chapter 12, <clears throat> where the prophet says that on the last day, that that even those who pierced him will mourn because of him. They will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn. On the last day, what will be in the minds of those who pounded in the nails and pierced Jesus? But you see, biblically, theologically, there's a sense in which you and I did that not by being literally there with the spikes, but it was our sins that nailed him there, really. And they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn, the text says. All the focus is on Jesus and his atoning work on behalf of his people. So what do we find in this opening? Grace and peace to you, the seven churches, from the triune God, with an emphasis on Jesus, concluded now with the mighty declaration of the Lord God that we find in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying, I am the A and the Z, I am the beginning and the end, I am the first and the last. Who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Now, what do we make of this spectacular text? That's the first part of our chapter. We come to the second part, the longer part. What we find here from verses 9 on is this. The deliberate transfer to Jesus of the characteristics of God Almighty. Let me repeat that. It's very important. What we find in these verses is the deliberate transfer to Jesus of the characteristics of God Almighty. Now, begin with the setting, verses 9 to 11. John explains his circumstances when he got this vision. He says he was on the island of Patmos, suffering for Jesus. Your brother and companion, he writes to his readers, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos, he says, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The island of Patmos is just off the western edge of what is now modern-day Turkey, just off the coast somewhat, a little farther south from the city of Ephesus. The seven churches that are mentioned in verse 11, you start with Ephesus, it makes a sort of a big loop and lands down in Laodicea. Ephesus was the king city, as it were, the primary city for this whole, whole area. And we don't know the reasons, but apparently John has been banished. Apparently he's become an annoyance to the Roman authorities, and he's, he's banished. At least he's not killed. He's banished, put off island, put offshore on the island, and and the sea lanes would be guarded so he couldn't really get back. Whether he was alone there or with a whole community, whatever, but at least in Ephesus uh, he had all of the freedom to circulate amongst the churches, and letters would go back and forth on... on on Patmos, he's effectively silenced and, and, and can't do very much. But there he was on the Lord's Day in Patmos toward the end of his life, and he says, I, I was in the Spirit. Exactly what he means by that, we can't be exactly sure. He, 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 he was somehow so enthralled by the Spirit, he had some kind of vision. There's a whole series of visions that come through to him in the book of Revelation, ending with the final vision of Revelation 21 and 22. I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, it wasn't just noise like a trumpet because there are actually words that this voice articulates. But to say it was a loud voice like a trumpet means it was piercing like the trumpets we heard earlier. Bing! You, you hear it. You pay attention. It interrupts whatever you're doing. Do you, 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 you see? So this voice was unavoidable, and, and it spoke. It said certain words. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That's the setting. And what's the content of this vision? That's laid out for us in verses 12 to 18. So I was in the spirit. I heard a voice behind me, he says. And so verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, this is what I saw. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, and so on and so on. Now, the book of Revelation belongs to a genre of literature that we sometimes just call apocalyptic. You you know as well as I do that different kinds of writing have to be read in slightly different ways. If you're a computer geek, you don't read a computer manual exactly the same way you read a Shakespearean sonnet, you know? There are different styles of writing that have to be read according to their own rules, as it were. And apocalyptic literature is characterized by several features. One of them is when symbols are introduced. Sometimes they're standard symbols that people who know that literature know. We'll come across one or two of them in a few moments. But sometimes some symbolism is introduced that is explained a little later. For example, in Acts 13, you're introduced to two beasts it's pretty difficult to make much sense of them until you read Acts 17, several chapters later. And then it's a lot easier to understand the beasts of chapter 13. Do you see? And sometimes the explanation isn't quite as far away as that. Sometimes it's, it's in the same chapter. So here, we're introduced to these lampstands. I saw seven golden lampstands, and a little farther on, we're, we're, we're told that in the right hand of this, this son of man, he, he, he held seven stars. Well, if you want to know what they are, Look down at verses 19 and 20. The text explains them for us. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So begin with the seven lampstands, the seven churches. You have this picture then in this vision that John receives. He looks around. He sees the seven golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches. He understands that. And in the midst of these seven lampstands is the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, we're told. That is one like a human being, a human figure, walking amongst the lampstands, looking at them, almost inspecting them, checking them out. And that's what leads to chapters 2 and 3. Because in chapters 2 and 3, the exalted Jesus then addresses each of the seven churches individually, what they're doing right, where they're falling behind, some that are suffering and and good and faithful, like Smyrna, and some that are big and prosperous, but somewhat compromised, like the church in Ephesus, which has lost its first love. So Jesus, who is walking amongst the seven churches, is assessing the churches according to the gospel of God. And of course, it's true. It's true. This same exalted Jesus by His Spirit is walking among the churches today seeing what's going on, assessing, encouraging, rebuking as He sees everything and evaluates everything according to the gospel of God. And in His hand, His right hand, we're told He has seven stars, which we're told are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, the word for angels there could just barely mean the seven ministers, elders, chief elders of the church, possible, seven messengers in that sense. But I suspect it really does mean angels. You may remember that um, in the Gospels, Jesus on one occasion says of little children that each of these little children has his angel before the Father's presence on high. We, We don't know much about the angelic world. There are a lot of silly speculations on television that are just embarrassing for their biblical ignorance. Just (laughs) hopeless, touched by an angel. Mm. (laughs) Ooh. But what the Bible does say about angels is that God does have His array of heavenly beings whom, whom He can send to nations, for example, in Daniel, and to little children in the teaching of Jesus. And here, apparently, connected with each individual local church. So that even these messengers from God are in Jesus' right hand. He he owns them as His. He controls them, do you see? So this church then is not abandoned to its own resources and everything depends on the cleverness of Steve and the staff with him. No, there is an angelic cohort, as it were, behind every local church. We don't know more than that. So that amount is pretty clear from the vision, but then what you see in all of the rest is an array of symbols that belong to God in the Old Testament. Let me refer to two or three passages. Just about every line in this description of the Son of Man is found in the Old Testament, either in Daniel or in Ezekiel, a couple of them from Isaiah. Let me just read a few verses from Daniel. Here's Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. Daniel, six centuries before Jesus now, writes, As I looked, in a vision that he received, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Isn't that a great description of God? The Ancient of Days. A lot more reverent than the old man. Because in English, the old man sounds as if Passing off just a wee bit, you know, no longer quite as sharp. But the Ancient of Days, with all of his strength, but however far back you go, he still is there and he's the Ancient of Days. His clothing was as white as snow, blindingly pure. The hair of his head was white like wool, a way of indicating he's the Ancient of Days. Thick, not going bald like some people I know. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. A little farther on, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. One like a human being. The way Jesus constantly refers to himself as the son of man in the Gospels. In fact, in some of the places where Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he is self-consciously referring to this passage in Daniel chapter 7. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, that's already been quoted back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. We, we read, Look, he is coming with the clouds of heaven, and every eye shall see him. In the book of Daniel, he's coming with the clouds of heaven, that is, born along in the very presence of God. Clouds of heaven are so often in symbol-laden ways associated with the presence of God. And he comes before the Ancient of Days. We read, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here you have a picture in Daniel of one like a son of man, a human being, a human being, coming and approaching the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven, this symbol-laden way of speaking of the glory of God, and he receives from the hand of the Ancient of Days an everlasting eternal kingdom that will never, ever pass away and that will reign over absolutely everyone and everything in the entire universe. That's the vision of Daniel. Now you come back to this vision here, and what you discover is that the very attributes that Daniel 7 and other passages assigned to God are now assigned to the one like a son of man. They're assigned to Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Later on, a description of God wearing priestly and kingly um, vestments the hair on his head was white like wool. We just read that for the Ancient of Days. As white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. We just read that from the Ancient of Days, these piercing eyes that see absolutely everything. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. We just read that. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That actually comes from Ezekiel. Now it's a slightly different image. Before, the voice, the voice was like a, a, a trumpet, loud and piercing, now the, like the sound of rushing waters, a changed metaphor because apocalyptic loves to mix its metaphors. It just loves to mix its metaphors. So the sound is, is, is a voice that is heard speaking words. It's also a piercing trumpet. It gets through, and it's the sound of rushing waters. Have you ever, have you ever been on the maid of the mist at the bottom of the Niagara Falls, the Niagara Cataract? The sound of rushing waters thundering along, overwhelming powerful, humbling, and yet somehow not so <clears throat> overwhelming that you can't talk. You can talk to the person next to you, and you, you can hear their words. They can hear your words. It's, it's, it's stunning, really, with all this thunder around you, and you talk, and you, you converse, but yet God's voice is inescapable like the thundering of many waters. Applied to God in Ezekiel, now applied to Christ. And in his right hand, he yells seven stars and so on and so on. In other words, what we find here is the deliberate transfer to Jesus of the characteristics of God Almighty. In other words, it's a way of saying anything you want to say about God, you must say about Jesus. You see, if you have an animal that looks like a horse and runs like a horse and smells like a horse and has the tail of a horse and the mane of a horse and all the attributes of a horse, you've got a horse. (laughs) You add horns and maybe an udder and a couple of other things, you don't have a horse and you might have a cow, but you don't have a horse. This is a powerful way of saying whatever attributes you ascribe to God, you must ascribe to Jesus as well. It is a way of stunningly affirming the deity of Christ. Is God the ancient of days symbolized by that white hair? Jesus is no less the ancient of days. Does God have these blazing eyes indicating faultless perception, brilliant face shining as the noonday sun? So, Jesus has these blinding eyes with perfect perception, His face blazing as the noonday sun, and so on, all the way through. But nowhere is this clearer, that is, that all the characteristics of God are deliberately transferred to Jesus, nowhere is this clearer than in verses 17 and 18. Because 17 and 18 correspond to what God has already said in verse 8. What did God say in verse 8? I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and the last. I am the A and I am the Z. I am the first and I am the last, says the Lord. Who is and who was and who is to come. That is to say, He's perpetually living. The Almighty. In fact, that's a quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, where we read, This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. That's verse 8 in our chapter. And now Jesus in verse 17 says, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. That is who is, who was, who is to come. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and hell. What does this mean? Well, let me begin by what it can't mean. It can't be a question of mere sequence. I am the first, and then everything comes after that, and then everything else dies out, and then there's still me. I'm the last. It can't be just sequence. It works at the front end, at the beginning end. I am the first. Before anything else was, God was. And the Son of God was God's own agent in creation. Doesn't John say as much in the opening lines of his gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, one of the titles of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, God's own fellow. And the Word was God, God's own self, nibbling away at the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't know how you put that together quite, God's own fellow and God's own self. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then we're told, without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, all of God's creative activity was done through the agency of the Son, of the Word of God. So everything in the universe that exists, apart from godness, everything that exists in the universe was made through the agency of the Son. He was the first. And then came the created order. So there's sequence there. God is first. The Son of God is first. He was with God. He was God from the beginning. There was sequence there. But when you get to the other end the sequence doesn't work. Because it's not as if the Bible speaks of God creating the new heavens and the new earth and it goes on for 10 billion years and 20 billion years and 46.3 billion years, and then quits. And then after that, there's just God. That would preserve sequence. I am the first, then there's everything else, and then it stops, and then I am the last. That would preserve sequence. But that's not what the Bible depicts. What the Bible depicts instead is that this new heaven and this new earth goes on as long as God goes on. It goes on forever. In fact, it goes on precisely because of Him, because He creates it and sustains it, That is the focus, the locus, in which He displays His glory for His own people in a transformed universe with resurrection existence and perfection and no tears and no sin and perfect righteousness and holiness and godliness and God-centeredness, world without end, amen. So how is God the last in that sequence? Do, 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 Do you see? So there's sequence at the beginning, but there's no sequence at the end. There's eternity. So whatever this expression, I am the first and I am the last, means, It's more than just sequence. And second, it certainly doesn't mean I'm the first and I'm the last, but I'm not interested in in between. I'm I'm not concerned about what's going on right now. I, I operate at the beginning, I operate at the end. Right now I'm having a snooze or going for a walk and the universe just looks after itself. It doesn't mean that either. So what does it mean? Four things. Number one. Jesus is the origin and goal of all things. That's the first. He's the origin, that is, he's God's own agent of creation. That is, the Son of God who becomes Jesus when he becomes a human being, is the origin of all things, God's own agent in creation. But he's also the goal of all things. That's stated in a lot of different ways in the Bible. For example... Colossians 1:17. This is said of him, all things have been created through him, God's own agent in creation, and for him. That is, for his glory, for his good, for his honor, for his praise. Do you see? The created order is for him. He's the goal. He's the end in that sense, the telos toward which everything moves. Or again, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. We read there that God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's whole sweeping plan to bring about a transformed universe under Christ. It's all for Him. Do you you see? Or again in Romans 8.29, God's purpose is that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son, that we might be like Jesus. He is, in other words, the goal. He's the end. He's the last toward which we are pressing. That same thing is said again and again and again in Scripture. Jesus is the origin and goal of all things. He's the first and the last. Number two, Jesus is the only God one with the Father. He's the only God. That comes out of the fact that this is, of course, as I've already indicated, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Let me read those words to you again. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Now Jesus says the same thing. I am the first and I am the last. You pick up the Old Testament allusion and you see right away that it is claiming, apart from me there is no God. It's an exclusive claim. Now in the ancient world, of course, there were many gods. In Paul's day, the Greeks and the Romans had thousands of gods. Modern Hinduism has millions of them. You can't possibly know them all. You couldn't even know them all in Paul's day. That's why he describes an altar in Athens in Acts chapter 17, an altar erected to an unknown God, in case they had missed one, who might be bad-tempered. So let's just offer a few sacrifices to an unknown God, hoping to cover all the bases. Do you see, when there are many, many, many gods, you can't possibly give all of your devotion to just one because they operate in different domains and any one of them can trip you up. You wanna make a sea voyage? You offer a sacrifice to Neptune, the god of the sea. Then you get to the other side and you're gonna give a lecture, then you offer a sacrifice to Mercury in the Roman world or Hermes in the Greek world, the god of communication. And maybe you're gonna meet your fiance, so maybe you'll wanna get Venus on board, do you see? (laughs) And all of these different domains of all of the gods, you see, you, you, you got to keep them all happy. Th- that's why essentially paganism and polytheism is such a terrifying kind of thing because you can slip up and, and, and if you miss one, that they can turn around. They're pretty bad-tempered, some of these gods and godlets and goddesses. They're pretty bad tempered and, and moreover when you, you, you discuss, discover what they're like in the Greek myths then they're copulating with their in-laws and they're guilty of incest and they hate their parents and, 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 and that, that's the life of the Greek and the Roman gods and you can't trust any of them. You have to please all of them and you can't devote all of your energy to any of them. But supposing there's only one God. That's the power of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Do you see? That commandment makes sense only once you've assumed there is only one God. Otherwise, it's just plain stupid. You've got to spread your loyalty around. But when there's only one God, it's crushingly obvious, it's disturbingly sinful if we're not doing it. And now Jesus claims, with His Father, to be that one God. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So these words indicate, first, that Jesus is the origin and goal of all things. And second, He is the only God. Third, He is the living God. And yet, He is the living God via the resurrection. Listen to what the text says again. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. The Father couldn't say that. The Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come. That is the living one, perpetually living. But the Father never died. The Spirit never died. God can't die. Yet Jesus claims to be God and says, I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. How can He say that? He can say that because as the eternal Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God became what He was not. He became a human being. In eternity past, the eternal Son of God was not a human being. In that sense, He was not yet the man we know as Jesus. He became what He was not. We call that Christmas. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. Emmanuel, God with us and human beings can die. And Jesus did die. So Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, could say with His Father, I am, I was, I will be, I am the living one. But it's not what He chooses to say here. Instead, He points to himself as the God-man. And the God-man lives after dying. I am the first and the last. And now you're primed to think, so you're alive forevermore. You are, you were, you will be. But he immediately says, and I was dead. And look, I am alive forever and ever. Have you reflected on the fact that King Jesus continues forever, not only as the eternal Son of God, but as a human being? It's not as if Jesus finished His work on the cross and the resurrection, then He's about to return to glory, so He leaves the humanness behind. Done with that now. You can just love me as God, finish with the human bit. No, 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 forever and ever. He is the God-man, which is why we read in Scripture He is not ashamed to call them human beings like you and me, His brothers and sisters. It is stunning. So that when Jesus says He is the living one, He says so not only by virtue of the fact that He is one with God, He says so by virtue of the fact that He became a human being. And as the God-man, He died, which the Father could not do, did not do, would not do, and rose again and ever lives as the God-man. And that's what takes us back then to this initial vote of praise that we read earlier, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. So by His death, He paid for our sins. By His resurrection, we are justified before God. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests. To Him be glory forever and ever, for He lives forever and ever. Jesus is the living God, but via the resurrection. And finally, Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, of death and hell. That's the way He ends up His words. I am the living one, the first and the last. I was dead, now look, I am alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and hell. Well, there's a sense in which the keys of death and hell belong to God. God is the supreme judge, And, and the eternal Son of God, one with God, has this judging function. He's God. But He peculiarly has the keys of death and hell because, as it were, He opened up hell for us by His death and resurrection. It means we're not all consigned there. There is escape, not after you've got to hell, but there is escape not having to go because He redeems countless men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Do you you see? He holds the keys of death and hell. He consigns to hell. He frees from judgment by His own death and resurrection. Therefore, He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. So much of this is summarized in an ancient four-line poem. It comes from the end of the Puritan era. The language is a little old, but listen closely. He death, in death, laid low. That is, he laid death low by his own death. Made sin, he sinned or through. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so. And death, by dying, slew. So he ever lives today and has the keys of death and hell because he lives in resurrection existence this side of the cross in which he handled my sin. Let Human beings build their empires and accumulate their wealth. One day they will die. They will take out exactly what I will take out. Nothing. And Jesus alone has the keys of death and hell. Let nations rise and fall. Let those who hate persecute the church. Let nations persecute the church. But he who sits in the heavens laughs, let all know that the resurrected Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. All the empires of this world become one with Nineveh and Tyre while Jesus controls the keys of death and hell. Let the broken and contrite men and women among us, aware of their sin and shame and hurt, boldly seek forgiveness and life from him who has the keys of death and hell. Let those who are cast down and who feel the meaninglessness of modern nihilism, the purposelessness of a purely mechanistic, secular worldview in which all of existence is merely bouncing subatomic particles without reference to anything external, without significance. It just happens, and, and and then you die like a dog, and that's it. Let all those who feel this utter purposelessness and helplessness contemplate what life will be like in 50 billion years. And remember that King Jesus has the keys of death and hell. I love a new song recently written by Stuart Townend and Mark Edwards. It talks about Christian hope, hope that we have now, and hope that we have at the end of life. There is a hope that burns within my heart, that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory, now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven, and Christ in me, the hope of heaven, my highest calling and my deepest joy, to make his will my home. There is a hope that lifts my weary head, a consolation strong against despair, that when the world has plunged me in its deepest pit, I find the Savior there. Through present sufferings, future's fear, he whispers courage in my ear, for I am safe in everlasting arms, and they will lead me home. There is a hope that stands the test of time, that lifts my eyes beyond the beckoning grave to see the matchless beauty of a day divine when I shall see his face. When suffering cease and sorrows die and every longing satisfied, then joy unspeakable will flood my soul, for I am truly home. because we know the one who has the keys of death and hell. I know no truth more terrifying than the truth that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again, is the first and the last. I know no truth more comforting than the truth that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again, is the first and the last. I know no truth more satisfying than the truth that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again is the first and the last. The Almighty. I know no truth more ministry empowering than the truth that the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again, is the first and the last, the Almighty, and said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Amen.